Welcome back to Bible Time. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be zeroing in on verse 13. One of the key hallmark mountaintop most important verses in the whole Bible and definitely the key to the book of Thessalonians and, the, and to understand the Thessalonican church and the success that God gave them. We've already touched on this verse a number of times as it is such a key to the success of this church and we've looked at it over and over again in our first studies in Thessalonians. We've referenced this verse. If there's one simple truth above all others to be highlighted in this book, I believe this is it. And it's something that we need to get down deep in our souls. Here's the text. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you would open our eyes to your word, that your power would open your word to our hearts, and Lord, that we would ourselves receive the word, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us today, in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake, amen. Now, this is going to also um, tie into our study on apostleship, as we noticed in verse 6 that um, here Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus could have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ, and we've been studying out apostleship, biblical apostleship is the title of one of our lessons there, Um, and that was from... A pre- from that text, actually, we looked at the role of the apostle in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, and then we looked also at the authority of the apostle, and we used the text there in verse 11 to do that. We've studied um, verse 8 with verse 7, verse 9's gotten in there some, verse 10. We've studied all these verses a little bit. I don't know if the Lord will have us go back and do individual studies on those verses or not. We'll see. We'll just try and mind the Lord. But how this will tie in today would be the apostles in the Bible. You see, the apostles brought the word of God to the Thessalonican church. And the apostles are the ones that gave us the Bible. We've asked the question several times, how do you know what the, what the Bible is? How do you know what books should be in the Bible and what books should not be in the Bible? And this, is, this, this study today will hopefully answer that question for you. Do you hear me? This study will bring the answer to that question um, here today. So we're going to title this this study, The Apostles and the Bible. And you pray for me that my throat will hold out that I can even teach this or preach it or whatever the Lord would have me do. Because I'm um, pretty hoarse. All right, so um, here's our text again. For this cause we thank God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. This verse easily breaks into three segments to be studied. For this cause thank we God without ceasing. So we'll look briefly at the thanksgiving of the apostles, and then we'll look at the reception of the word of God, which is the main body of this text because when you received the word of God which you heard of us you received it not as the word of men but as it is in truth the word of God and that breaks into three parts itself receiving the word of God from the men receiving it not as not as it is the word of men and then receiving it as it is in truth the word of God and then finally we'll look at the effect 
of the word of God received, not as the word of man, but as the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So this um, begins here with the unceasing thanksgiving of the apostles in the face of persecutions and flight and afflictions. We'll see that more in verse 3 of chapter 3. He says that no man should be moved by these afflictions. They were dealing with these afflictions. They were dealing with persecutions. You'll remember this was a church born in trouble, a church that had only three weeks of instruction from the apostle Paul to move from paganism to full-blown Christianity, becoming samples to all them that are in Macedonia and Achaia. So this church born in trouble and born in battle, born in spiritual warfare, born in persecution, was then immediately deprived of the apostles that God had used to bring the word of God to the church and specifically um, the 12th apostle, Paul. And so here in the face of persecutions, in the face of flight, um, the main man that brought them the word of God running from the town for his life and for their protection and going on and being persecuted to strange cities and chased out of the country by the Jews that lived in that city of Thessalonica in the midst of all the hunger and the distresses and all the things that came upon them, which we'll study some of that a little bit more um, if we do study out Um, verse 9 in detail later, in the midst of all these distresses, in their memory of everything that happened there at Thessalonica, the memory of the reception of the word of God by the Thessalonican church caused the apostles continual joy. It caused Paul's evangelistic band a continual joy. He was he was grateful. Can you imagine Paul the um, Paul there in Athens? And he, he describes some of the stuff that he went through, some of the, the trial of his own faith as he wondered what would happen to them. There in chapter 3, verse 1, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. So... Well, they were worried about them and they did pray for them, um, the, the joy that would come to their hearts on the memory of how these pagans received the word of God would li- put a smile on their faces. You can see them working there, um, laboring as they would night and day in the minuscule minutia. We just touched on that. We just barely mentioned it in the last lesson. All the minutia of apostolic pioneer mission work. And again, if you if that raises the hackles on the back of your neck, study the Bible, study what it says about apostle. Um, don't go for these anti-doctrines. You can go back and listen to other our other lessons on biblical apostleship, what an apostle actually is. And we give the biblical case very clearly from the Word of God that an apostle is that there are two types of apostles. There's the twelve apostles of the Lamb, and then there are the apostles who are just sent and we can we'll add to that just a little bit today in this study Um, and I'll I'll just um, add to that right now Hebrews chapter 4 calls Christ the apostle of our profession the apostle we'll look at Hebrews 4 a little while later and maybe touch on that but here they are and they're going through all the the battle of minutia one of the great battles of pioneer mission work is that everyday life is a trial 
Everyday life is a trial. Everyday life is a battle. Things that normal families have nailed down, like getting water, can become an absolute trial and affliction and a time-consuming battle for someone who's operating in a pioneer missions capacity. Bathing, um, clo- um, just washing your laundry, things like that. Um, providing food and finding food because you don't know where the stores are. And if you do, um, it, you may move on to the next place about the time you finally figure out the stores. You've got to figure out the local dialects. You've got to figure out local prices. You've got to figure out local merchants and figure out which one's going to give you a good deal and which one's going to scalp you. You're constantly being, um, uh, constantly the newbie, constantly the new guy. Never have a system, never have, never have a place that settled. You realize Paul didn't have a study do you realize that? He didn't have a study. In one of his epistles, he said he asked them to bring the parchments with him. The parchments with him. Paul didn't have a study. He didn't have a room that was dedicated to, um, to the work of studying for the ministry where he could go and get alone with God and pull out his books and lay out his papers and have everything organized. He didn't have file cabinets for his notes. He didn't have banker's boxes filled with his notebooks. He didn't have any of that stuff. And this is, this is the, the aspect of life of this apostolic work that is, that is possibly some of the most overlooked. And that is that the minutia of life becomes major. The little things become big things. And so the apostle then, as is said in 1 Corinthians 4, is set forth last. The off-scouring of the earth. The always trying to earn a hearing. Never being recognized as anybody special. Whereas a pastor who's ordained to pastor a church, every year that he stays there, he has more clout and he has more hearing because of his earned authority that he's earned year after year after year of his faithful labors in that local church. And as he gets to an older age, he'll have older people who have lived their whole lives being pastored by him. And they trust him, and they're going to back him up, and they've gone too far together to give up now. And even if they come to a disagreement, there's often friendships that have been built that can survive major disagreements. And that pastor, especially in his old age, will be given much honor very often. And he will... He'll have his old sermon notes, he'll have his books, he'll have everything laid out, he'll have a way of doing things, he'll have faithful helpers, he'll have often an entire staff of people who are either volunteers um, with no pay and no recognition, or maybe they are um, paid staff and maybe they do have pay, but either way, he'll have a staff, he'll have people he can count on, he'll have people that can count on him, and the apostle gets none of that stuff. So that apostle, there he is laboring. There's Paul in Athens, a new city with new markets and new streets to learn that he's never seen before. New maps. He's got to wander around asking directions, meeting new people, going to new places, listening to new things, looking at new idols of the unknown God, etc. Trying to build his ministry from scratch again, even though he's already done it so many times. Trying to start a work of God and start a church in a a strange city and in the midst of all of the labor and all of the travail and all the difficulty as he's there working you can see Paul maybe he's scrubbing his clothes down by the river 
And he's down there um, getting a needed bath and scrubbing his clothes, doing something so simple that some, listen to me, can you imagine the Apostle Paul down by the river, river scrubbing his clothes? See, this is, the, this is the humility, this is the humiliation of the apostolic ministry. This is, the, this is the reality of it. Here's the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Romans, and here he probably was down by the river scrubbing his clothes. And so just imagine him down there. He's scrubbing his clothes. He's taking the opportunity to get a bath, and he's letting the sun dry his back while he scrubs his clothes. And he's, and he's scrubbing along, and Timothy's over there scrubbing his clothes, singing a psalm. And all of a sudden, Paul just lights up in a big smile and starts laughing joyfully and says praise God and you can see Timothy look up from his scrubbing and look back at the apostle Paul and a grin come up on Timothy's face and old Silvanus has just just walked walked down to the water side and he's getting ready to take his bath and he looks over at the two of him and he smiles and he pulls the the clothes off of his back to scrub them and you can see the scars all over his back from his whippings and his beatings but on his face is the glow of heaven and on his mouth you see that beautiful smile and Paul's chuckling and laughing and Timothy's laughing and pretty soon Sylvanus is laughing and they're smiling and they're, and they're scrubbing their clothes and doing the little work and they don't even have to tell each other what's on their hearts because they've been close and they've been through the battle and they know what they're all thinking. They're thinking about those pagans over at Thessalonica. Three weeks they preached the gospel to them and in three weeks you saw pagans go to become saints. In three weeks you saw slaves become masters in three weeks you saw those that were on their way to hell become the heirs of the kingdom of God joint heirs with Christ pressing forward against the gates of hell themselves and these men are laughing in the face of hell because of what they have seen God do and the joy has filled their countenance he says for which cause we get we thank God without ceasing for this cause also thank we God without ceasing and they begin a song of praise and thank God for what they saw God do in the church of the Thessalonians. And what was it? What was it that caused this transformation in the church of the Thessalonians? What was it that took the slave and made him a master? What was it that took him the hell-bound servant of sin and made him a joint heir with God? (coughs) It was this that, that we study here. That when they received the word of, when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it was in truth the word of God. This is the spring that feeds the river of life flowing, flowing from the bowels of the Christian. The word of God received as the word of God believed in as the word of God. That keeps the multitude in the wilderness beyond the manna itself, belief in the word of God. This is what makes a shepherding youth a giant slaying mighty man, belief in God's word. This is what makes an aged president appointed over princes of the province by Darius brave the den of lions and come through victorious belief in the word of God. This is the key to true Christianity and this is the key to the victorious Christian life. How you receive the word of God. 
Now, we looked at the joy of the apostles in this text, and secondly, we're going to look at the reception of God's Word, and this comes in three parts. Um, first of all, the communication of the Word by men, by simple men. Secondly, the recognition of the supernatural in what was said. And then thirdly, the correct judgment that the apostles' words were the Word of God. So let's look at the communication of the word by man. Uh, Go to 1 Corinthians. Paul says that we have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of men. This morning I was studying and I was I was discouraged and it was like I wasn't getting anything out of the out of the text and I was just staring at the text and I prayed and asked God for help and all of a sudden the power of God came right there where I was studying and it turned dry words on a page into the living word of God and that's what we're talking about here today and this is the source of life for Christianity this is what keeps your Bible from being like it's chewing on gravel and turns it into chewing on a sirloin steak is the power of God. Without it, we're dead in the water. With it, we can charge hell and win. So here we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God, not of men. 1 Corinthians 1, 17, he says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Do you see this contrast that God has given us through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? First of all, to them that are lost, the preaching of the cross is foolishness, but to them that are saved, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Get this right here. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. This is the part of the gospel that is the most hated of all. Not only does Christ call us um, lost, and the, the fact that he died on the cross proves that all have sinned. God's allowance of his son to die on the cross for your sin proves that you are a sinner. And that that is the offense of the cross. But even beyond that offense of the cross, what often offends people before they even think hard enough to get offended by the reality of their sin is the fact that God would send a human instrument to preach the cross to them. And most people will not even listen to the gospel long enough to get offended by the gospel because they're offended by the instrument that God uses to bring the gospel. God has ordained the foolishness of preaching to save them which believe. And the foolishness of preaching is wrapped up in the vessel by which God brings the preaching. It isn't a vessel of gold. It isn't a vessel of silver. It's a vessel of earth, a clay vessel, just a simple clay pot. We are all dust, the Bible says. 
We are all dust. God made us from, made Adam from the dust of the ground. And here God takes a earthen vessel, a clay pot, a human instrument with human weaknesses and human shortcomings. And in fact, even human sinfulness. And he brings that vessel and he puts the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ within that earthen vessel. And he sends it to a lost and dying world. And he sends it through that instrument for a purpose. And that is to bring to naught the wisdom of the wise. It is to bring down the the scholar and the wise and the erudite and all these that know so much the disputer of this world. God does this to make foolish the wisdom of the world. It pleased God. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. I want to tell you today that one of the things that has killed fundamentalism and has killed a literal belief in the word of God and has killed faith in God in this country is apologetics. Apologetics is the wisdom of man and the wisdom of words trying to prove God's word. And the whole purpose of apologetics is to, is to use man's wisdom, man's archaeology, man's eschatology, man's, um, what's the word there for the Greek? I forget it now, but anyway, that to use all of man's exegesis, there it is, I knew it was another E word, we had to get it in there, amen. Anyway, we had to use all of man's stuff to try and prove the gospel. And that's the wisdom that the world knew not God by. And God says the world had the opportunity to know me by wisdom and they would not. So God has chosen the foolishness of preaching. Now, you get into all this apologetics, it's going to kill your faith. And I've seen it over and over and over and over and over again. The fruit of that tree is spiritual pride. And pride separates you from God. And pride bring, opens the gateway to all manner of other sin. So people get all their apologetics and all their answers in Genesis and everything else. And I love many of those folks and I want the best for them. But people start leaning on those answers instead of the preaching of the cross. Instead of the power of God. And next thing you know, they're so carnal it's sick. They can't think right. They're upside down in their head. They're approaching the Bible from a worldly perspective after the wisdom of men. And the truths and the power of God's word are locked up to them. And before long, what they have is the doctrines of men that they're teaching is the commandments of God. And they have a form of godliness denying the power thereof, which the apostle said of such turn away. That's the fruit of that tree of apologetics. We don't need apologetics. You don't need it. You don't need an Unger's Bible Dictionary. You can get some useful stuff out of that. You don't need all that other stuff. It can be nice. It can be helpful. But listen to me today. If you start resting your faith in God on the wisdom of this world, you will be made shipwreck. It will shipwreck you. You are better off not getting any of it if your tendency is to rest on it. It's it's like a drug to a lot of Christians. They start getting into all this apologetic stuff and they get wooed and wowed. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy that in the end times, the people will not endure sound doctrine, but will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they just want their ear itched by another guy that can come along and tell them about all the gods of Babylon and tell them about 
how this relates to this and how that relates to that and can woo them with archaeological finds and evidences and scientific data and all this other stuff about the Hebrew and the Greek and all of the meanings of the of the illustrations and the word pictures in the Hebrew and etc and etc and etc and their faith begins to rest in the wisdom of man's words instead of in the power of God it's a death nail to true religion. It's a death nail to a zeal for souls. It's the death nail for pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father, which is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Instead of watching another series, another giant documentary on the scientific data that has been found to prove the Bible, why don't you go out and give your money to a poor widow and mow her lawn and spend all of your, her, your time that day trimming her trees? You'd be miles ahead in your religion if you dump the apologetics and get back to pure religion. So here God has ordained the foolishness of preaching to save them which believe. There is an earthen vessel aspect to the word of God. Here as we've noted the word of God was brought to the Thessalonican church communicated by the word of sinful fallen man. Now he said there you observed you know how we walked holily and justly and unblameably before for you and he cites for it the power of God it wasn't their discipline that made them holy it was the power of God on their life that kept them from sin and made them holy I don't believe in this holiness where you get some kind of spiritual holiness that has no effect on your body do you hear me today such a holiness is not a holiness that is in the word of God. When the Holy Spirit of God fills a man and that man is walking in the spirit, your Bible says, if you walk in the spirit, ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You cannot be holy inside while you're being unholy on the outside. But you can clean up the outside and make it look holy while you're not holy on the inside. But just because that is true, it does not mean that the opposite it is true and that you can be holy on the inside while being unholy on the outside. You can't. God's standard is perfect. God's standard is not fair. God's standard does not work to your advantage. It's not some kind of algorithm that you can unlock and some kind of little secret code that you can work into in order to be pleasing to God and figure out God and, and Jimmy God and leverage God to try and get privileges from the Most High. God is holy and God has chosen to preach the Word of God through earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of man. And this is what we've got to have. We've got to have holy men of God who are willing to get do what it takes to get right with God and get in the word of God and go and carry the word of God and go and preach the word of God. The Bible says in Romans, how shall they hear except they preach? And how shall they preach except they be sent? It says how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring good tidings of glad things. Things. God has ordained the gospel to be preached and he's ordained it to be preached through the word of an earthen vessel of a man. These men came to the church at Thessalonica and they came as men. They walked among them as men. If we look in more detail at 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 9, talking about their labor night and day, we'll see some of the weakness of these men. And we may, um, we may even have another text here. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. 
For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul said, I came to you in weakness. I came to you in trembling. I came to you in fear. He said, I came to you in a way that you could not recognize as anything other than human. You could not look at me and say I was anything other than a wretch of a human being that had been saved by the grace of God. I came to you as an earthen vessel. I came to you in weakness. Look at um, chapter 2 and verse 7. And this is going to take us into the second part here, the recognition of the supernatural and what was said. So in our text there, he says, when you received the word of us, you received it not as the word of man. And that's where we're at now, not as the word of man. Look at verse 7. Let's look at verse 6 in 1 Corinthians 2. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. So here is the earth and vessel. Here is the man Paul preaching in weakness, in fear, in trembling. But as he's preaching, there's a hidden wisdom inside the pot. And somehow those people got a glimpse of the glow. And they saw a little shine come out of that pot. And like little children who just can't be kept out of anything, they had to see what was making that pot glow. They knew it was just a pot. They could tell it was just a pot. But there was some power on that earthen vessel. And there was some power in the word of God that was preached by that earthen vessel. And there was a hidden wisdom. And they were drawn to that hidden wisdom. And they got closer to it. Look at verse 8 which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. If these princes had known what was the hidden mystery, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So the gospel is a hidden gospel. The gospel is a mysterious gospel. The gospel is hidden in earth and vessels that the excellency of the glory may be of God and not of men. So these Thessalonians saw that there was something deeper than what met the eye, that there was something more than Paul's opinion coming out of his mouth. And so we can look here at verse 9, but as it is written, I have not seen. Now before we go any further, this is not a text about heaven. I'll show you that from the context. This has to do with the gospel. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. So that passage has nothing to do directly with heaven. Everybody likes to quote that verse about heaven, and you can definitely make an application, but it's direct contextual understanding, and the only true interpretation of it is that man, the princes, could not see, and their ears could not hear. That's why they crucified the Lord of glory. And that these who believed the gospel, God revealed to them the hidden mystery that the princes did not see. Do you get that today? 
God revealed to these that believed the hidden mystery that even the princes that crucified the Lord of glory could not see. And this is the second part of the reception of the gospel here. The first part that the apostles were just men, just men. And you got to get that down. They're not, no apostle ever has been any kind of superhero except the apostle, Jesus Christ, who Hebrews 4 calls the apostle. Now, Uh, Which is also, by the way, proof that the twelve are not the only apostles, because Christ was one. So you got it. We got to. We've got to define things biblically. We've got to get back to biblical definitions, or we end up with all kinds of contradictions, and we make we make God's word out to be full of contradictions and misrepresent truth. So. This hidden wisdom was not seen by some, but by these at the church of the Thessalonians, they said, this is not natural. This is not normal. We're hearing words from a man. We see a man's lips moving. We see a man's eyes that are... And we that are looking at us to communicate with us, and we see his hands moving, and we see his body walking back and forth, or sitting, or however he was positioned there, whatever posture he was in. And we see the man, but there's something glowing. There's some light deep within the man that's coming out of the man. There's something real that is not man. There's something here that is not philosophy. There's something here that is not apologetics. There's something here that is not history. There's something here that is not scientific. There's something here that's beyond that. There's something here that's spiritual. There's something here that has power. And when we look in that man's eyes while he's preaching, we're seeing into another world that we've never seen before. And we don't know how to explain it. But we know that this is not the word of men. But that in and of itself was wasn't enough to get them there. Verse 13 says, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now this very verse, verse 13, which things also we speak, that very phrase can be said in a university. And he says, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, yet those are words which man's wisdom teacheth. Some of you here today are learning vocabulary. Some of you are learning words which man's wisdom teacheth, and that's how you know to read these words. Paul wasn't, get this, because this is the other edge of the spectrum. This is the other side of error that you can go to. Paul wasn't saying that there was some kind of otherworldly communication that did not involve his lips. Do you hear me? The words that he was saying were literally being understood by the Thessalonians as being not the words of men. <clears throat> but they were literal words. And Paul's saying, these words that we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, is not negating the literal, physical preaching of the words of the gospel. That's where we started. That the word that we brought to them, that's the literal physical word. And you cannot, listen to me, you cannot separate one way or the other the literal physical word of God from the spiritual living word of God. You cannot separate the two. If you try and maintain that you have some kind of connection to the living word of God while denying the physical word of God, you are in biblical error and in a lie. You see, God sent them to preach the gospel, and they preached the gospel. And they used words, literal words, 
physical words. But what Paul is saying here is it went beyond the basic meanings and definitions of the words, which is why you scholarly types are never going to get it. And you'll probably bust hell wide open because you're trying to understand the Bible with your mind and with definitions and with the Greek and with the Hebrew and with tenses and with the word pictures in the Hebrew and all these other things that you get into and you've never experienced the power of God in the word of God, the the dunamis, the power of God that takes the word and makes it the word. And that's what you got to have. Here they took the word of God, not not with the words which man's wisdom speaketh, (coughs) teacheth, there there in 1 Corinthians 2.13, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And this brings us to the third part of the reception of the word of God. 1 Corinthians 2.10. And we looked at this verse. God hath revealed them unto us. So here ye received the word of God which ye heard of us. Ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And this is where we're at now. This portion on the fact that they received this word, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And here in 1 Corinthians 2.10, God hath revealed them unto us, these things the eye hath not seen nor ear heard. And again, everybody wants to um, point that to heaven, but in, in the next verse, he says, God hath revealed them unto us. So you're undermining your own argument if you try and use this verse for heaven and say, oh, heaven's so wonderful that none of us even know what God's doing up there. The next verse says, God hath revealed them unto us. So if that's about heaven, then we already know all about it. So again, just stick with context. And you can make an application that there are things about heaven that I have not seen nor ear heard, but that is not what this text is about. This is, de- this is displaying for you the purpose of this text that I have not seen nor ear heard is that man cannot teach or describe the glory of salvation apart from the power of the Holy Spirit of God. You can use all the same words, but if it doesn't come with the power, it's dead and flat and lifeless and limp. You ever pulled a fish up out of the water and held it in your hand and it was wiggling and alive? You ever held a dead fish in your hand and it wouldn't wiggle? Same exact fish. You use the same words to describe it. It looks the same. It sounds the same. Your description sounds the same. The outside has the same slime on it. You can feel the same scales. You can can examine it and look all through it, but it has no life in it. The life is out of it. That's what we've got to have for the gospel to go forward is the life in the gospel, the power of God in the gospel, and the power of God in the gospel of God, which we've noted in a previous lesson, directly followed the beatings that they took in Philippi, which is a perfect example of what God says, that when you suffer for Christ, that the spirit of glory and of power uh, and of God resteth upon you. The spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. Here they are preaching the word of God, and these Thessalonians receive it as it is in truth, the word of God. And it says here in 1 Corinthians 2.10, But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Did you hear that today? You think you're so smart, you're going to understand the inner workings of God, but you can't even really figure out your own deceitful heart. 
And here God says that the Spirit of God understands the things of God, and it takes the Spirit of God to illuminate fallen man to the things of God. You're not going to get it by, by just definitions of words. You're not going to get it by um, looking in the Hebrew and the Greek. You're not going to get it by studying all of these things. You're going to get it by the illumination of the Holy Spirit or you're not going to get it. And again, that doesn't mean that the definitions are not important. It doesn't mean that the words are not important, but it means that apart from God illuminating those words, you're not going to get it. So you got two extremes. You got the extreme that thinks that if they've got a dead fish to dissect and they go into their dead theology that they can teach people to be saved and people will be saved apart from the power of God and that's a lie. And you've got other people that try and dissect a pelican and say that it's a fish because the words don't really matter. And they come up with whole new words and all these cults out here, what do they use to describe their thoughts? Words. Listen, don't go off the deep end and all this Scientology garbage and mysticism stuff, okay? This is all rooted in the Word of God. we got to have words. So the communication of the Word was by men originally. The recognition then that took place was a recognition by the church of Thessalonica, as they were still pagans, of this supernatural source of what was being said. That this was not the Word of men. And then they correctly judged that the words of the apostles were the words of God and not words of men. So here in 1 Corinthians, again, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? This is verse 11. Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, which is a lowercase s, by the way, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. That is the spirit which is of God that he's talking about, not the spirit of God. He's talking about the spiritual man within you that must be illuminated, that must be eyes must be open and this is the whole basis for all the doctrines we were we're not even going to get into that we get into that we'll get stuck we're going to move on but anyway this is lowercase s spirit the spirit of a man which must be illuminated by the holy spirit of god with a capital s in order for that man to know the things that are freely given to us of god it is not good enough for you to know in your mind in your will or in your emotions god you must know him in your heart you must believe him in your heart in order to have the righteousness which is of faith And without that righteousness, which is of faith, you will be rejected. That is the garment that will be required at the wedding feast, without which you'll be cast into outer darkness. You must have the imparted righteousness of Christ in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Ye cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is what God is saying. They received the word of God, not as it was, not as the word of men, but as it was in truth, the word of God. And he says here, which things all Also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man cannot receive the things of God. I'm sorry, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, these are things that are written in plain English on the page of your authorized version, perfectly preserved, inspired, and included in the Word of God. 
God, by inspiration of God, and yet without the Spirit of God to illuminate them, you cannot discern them because they are spiritually discerned. You can read the words. You can make word lists of words you don't understand. You can get out the dictionary and write down definitions and memorize them. You can cross-examine them. You can get 47 different translations of the Bible and look at all the different opinions, and you can read all the commentaries, and you can get the Strong's Concordance out and dig down into the Greek and the Hebrew. You can write down the words and what they mean. You can learn the language of Greek. You can go beyond that and start studying the roots and the tenses and the word pictures and everything else that you want to study. And until the Spirit of God gives you spiritual discernment of the Word of God, you'll be dead in the water, dead spiritually, dead in your trespasses and sins and far off from the kingdom of God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel on your way to hell. You've got to have the spiritual discernment that only the Spirit of God can give you. And that should humble you today. It's not of works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. It's not according to the years that you spent in scholastic study. It's not according to your erudition. It's not according to your learning. It's not according to your theological understanding that He saves you. It's according to your faith in God. And faith is believing God said what He said and meant what He said and will do what He said and then acting on what God said. That's the essence of faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen as yet. Go to um, Corinthians 4, 19. 1 Corinthians 4, 19. We're, and we're about to bring this thing in for a landing and close it up for the day. Paul said here to the church at Corinth, But I will come to you shortly if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Now, nowhere here can you misconstrue this to say that the kingdom of God is apart from the word of God and the Bible, but he's saying the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Okay, you've got to take all of it. If you take one to the exclusion of the other, you'll have heresy on both sides, ditches on both sides of the narrow way. 1 Thessalonians um, 2, verse 13, our text again, and we're going to um, wrap it up. We've looked at, for this cause also think we got without ceasing the joy of the apostles upon the memory and the praise of the apostles upon the memory of the reception of the word of God, which was the second part, the reception of the word of God by the Thessalonians. We looked at the three aspects of the reception of the word of God by the Thessalonians. First, that the communication of the literal physical word of God was by a physical fallen man. Second, that the Thessalonians recognized the supernatural nature of the words and the power of the of God Almighty on the words delivered to them by a fallen um, fleshly man and thirdly there the correct judgment of the Thessalonians that the apostles words were not the words of men but the words of God and that encompasses the reception of the word of God by the Thessalonians for which cause the apostles gave thanks and then finally here we're going to look at the effectual working of the word of God in them that believe he says here which effectually worketh also in you that believe go to Hebrews chapter 4 we're going to move quickly through this and have some closing remarks and be done. Hebrews 4 and verse 2. I'd appreciate continued prayer 
um, for my throat, that God would heal my throat, that I would be able to overcome this cough. So he says here, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. That is loaded. That is absolutely loaded. Faith is taking God at his word by dictionary definition. Um, Some people will say of the word of God, I think there are mistakes in it. Other people will say man wrote that book which has an element of truth in it because we have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of men. So God had his word written through men. And this, this whole message answers these questions right here if you're willing to have them answered. Uh, still other people will say, well, God initially inspired the word of God, but men have copied it and there have been um, deletions and additions throughout the ages. Well, if you're using um, Catholic Bibles like the NIV, the ESV, the RSV, the NLT, etc., 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 the NASB, a conglomeration of Catholic work as well as um, corrupted scholarly um, apostate evangelical work. If you're using those kinds of Bibles, then you do have additions and, and deletions. But there is a perfectly preserved Word of God, exactly like God said there would be. He promised it, and the, the reliance is not on men to copy it, right? It's on God to do what He said He would do. Um, others will say we don't have the exact word of God. It doesn't exist, and et cetera, and et cetera. And Hebrews 4 deals with you guys. It says, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And we're going to back this thing up to Hebrews 3 and get a run at this thing. <coughs> Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. We've been talking about the apostles lately, and here we're talking about the apostles in the Bible. And here in Hebrews 1, or 3, verse 1, we're introduced to the apostle with a capital A. The apostle. Jesus Christ was sent down from heaven, the apostle, to this lost, dying world. All apostle means is sent to preach the word of God. Sent to be his witness. That's all it means. That is all it means. It doesn't mean a superhero dancing around in a five-piece suit extorting money from widows and slapping people on the forehead. It has nothing to do with any of that kind of garbage. We've got to take back the words that God gave us and use them biblically. Use them according to the Bible, the way that the Bible uses them. So the apostle of... <coughs> The apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, the great apostle ordained 12 apostles. One of them fell from his habitation. His bishopric was taken by another one ordained necessarily by Jesus Christ. No man can ordain an apostle of the Lamb. There is no succession of that office unless Jesus Christ himself handpicks, validates, and verifies that one as an apostle. So here you have the 12 apostles, which is why I will maintain biblically that the apostle Paul was indeed the 12th apostle and not Matthias, who was nonetheless an apostle, a sent witness, a witness of the life and ministry of Christ, but not one of these special 12 hand-picked apostles of the Lamb who had authority from the word of God to speak the word of God. 
It says, who is faithful? Speaking of Christ, to him that appointed him as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. What on earth is he saying? Is he saying that you can lose your salvation? Not at all. You see, many people come to the Bible and they receive the Bible as the word of men. And they make a profession of faith in what men told them, believing all the while a doctrine and a gospel of men. Do you hear me today? These people have never received the salvation of Christ, but they've received a salvation of men. And they're going to lose that salvation because it has no power to keep them. But here are people who follow Christ. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if ye will hear his voice. Do you hear that? Salvation here comes from hearing his voice, the voice of Jesus Christ. He said, my sheep hear my voice. And they follow my call in a stranger's voice. They will not know. If any of you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways." These are people that heard the audible voice of God thunder from Mount Sinai. These are the people that saw the ten plagues in Egypt that broke the world mega power, the world superpower. These are the people that walked through the Red Sea with the water standing up and in a heap on the right hand and on the left. And they watched Pharaoh and his army get crushed in that sea behind them. These are the people that came to Merah, the bitter waters, and Moses cast a branch into the water and the waters were healed. And these are the people that saw Moses strike a rock and water gush out of the rock and according to the book of Corinthians in the New Testament the rock followed them everywhere they went how many of you have had a rock follow you everywhere you go these people had a rock with water gushing from it following them everywhere they went these people had the manna coming down from heaven and they were eating heaven sent bread angels food according to the word of God according to one of the preachers in the Word of God. <clears throat> and these people, it says, do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. What does the Bible say in Romans is required for salvation? For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. These people had all the outward trappings of religion, and they had more apologetics than you'll ever ever amass in a lifetime they had more visible historical and archaeological proof of God's word than you will ever shake a stick at Moses had read writings that were carried over on the ark by Noah don't doubt it they had more archaeological evidence than you'll ever have furthermore they had more miracles and signs and wonders than the rest of you will ever want all of you that are in the miracle sign and wonder crowd they had it all they had the they had the apologetics they had the signs they had the wonders 
They had a pillar of fire going before them by day, by night, and a pillar of cloud by day to give them shade in the day, the visible manifest presence of Almighty God. How many of your churches have God sitting over the church? manifesting himself as God and audibly speaking to your congregation to give them anything, much less ten commandments. And these people, he said, take heed lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. What does that mean? The beginning of our confidence is when we first hear the gospel. And you hear that Jesus died and was buried and rose again the third day. And a battle begins to take place in your soul over whether or not you're going to believe in your heart. That's the beginning of your confidence. You've heard the gospel and in your mind you mentally assent to some of the truth. In your will you choose to pursue further and seek. And in your emotions you are drawn to this Savior who died for you. But in your heart there has never been formed a new creature in Christ. You've never been born again because your faith has not ever reached down into the depths of your heart and residing inside your heart may be what he says here, an evil heart of unbelief, which will be evidenced by your departing from the living God someday. An evil heart of unbelief. And he says, well, it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation for some when they heard did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Chapter 4. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest any of you should seem to come short of it for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them but the word preached did not profit them not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Faith means taking God at his word. Faith is what is evidenced here in our text in 1 Thessalonians that gave the apostles such great joy that they thanked God without ceasing. It made their stripes feel better. It made the pain in their back seem less. It made their sores on their feet not bother them quite so much to think about that little church down in Thessalonica with a bunch of backwards pagans who they preached the gospel to and as they preached they watched the faces of those people change as those people's hearts were opened to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God illuminated their understanding and he says here because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us ye heard it from simple men ye received it not as the word of men though it came from men though it came from men but as it is in truth The word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. In closing here, Christ the apostle sent by God to witness in power, which is what an apostle is, came with power and witnessed in power what God had said and what God would do. And the word of God was preached by Christ. And men said, and it said of men in the word of God that they marveled 
They were astonished at his doctrine, for he spake as one that had authority and not as one of the scribes. He had power, and he had power on his word. And he picked 12 apostles, and these also preached the word of God with power. He picked another 70 disciples and sent them out in the same manner as apostles, though they were not apostles of the Lamb. They were not part of the 12 that are made distinct by the book of Revelation. Um, 2 Peter 3.15 these 12 apostles gave us the Bible. The, the title of this lesson today is The Apostles in the Bible. And you've got to get this to answer the question of where did our Bible come from? How do we know that the Bible is the Bible? How do we know the book of Judas shouldn't belong in the Bible? This is it right here. You're not going to like this answer, a lot of you, because a lot of you want some kind of scholarly answer, and I'm going to give you a spiritual answer. It's going to sink your boat. You're going to be unhappy with me over it. But all I can do is give you Bible give you scripture. So here in 2 Peter 3 and verse 15, it says an account, let's go to verse 14, wherefore beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless and account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction." Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, listen to this, almost identical warning as Hebrews, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Here the apostle Peter ratified, validated the the epistles of Paul that were given as scripture. Do you hear that? He compared directly the word of God that was passed down through the prophets to the word of God that was given through the Apostle Paul. And what we have here is the succession of apostolic writings. Not the succession succession of an apostolic bishopric. We don't need that. But we have instead from God the succession of apostolic writings that the 12 apostles of the Lamb gave us the doctrine, the new revelation of the new covenant that Christ made with His blood and Christ bore witness to them. How did Christ prove that He was the apostle sent from God? By signs and wonders, by mighty works that He did. Christ proved by the power of God on his life, not just on the signs and the wonders, but on the holiness and the unblameableness. As they said, we find no fault in him at all. His holiness, his unblameableness, his power, his might, his authority, the fact that he could cast out a devil in the face of the Pharisees who were calling him a devil. And then preach and teach the reality that if Satan cast out Satan, his kingdom is divided. Christ preached and proved who he was by the power of God in his life. And then Christ himself, after proving who he was, Christ picked 12. And the 12, listen to me today. The 12 that Christ picked were endued with special power from on high beyond that which has ever been witnessed on anybody else in the history of the world. 
And those 12 had a special endowment of power from on high. And they operated in all of the spiritual gifts. All of the time. At will. They walked with God in a manner of near sinless perfection. But God would let them stumble every now and then just to remind everybody that they were just men. He let Paul fear and tremble. He let Peter dissemble there in the book of Acts. So that everyone would know that these men were not demigods. They were just men. Apostles are just men. And these special 12 apostles were given special power and signs and wonders to ratify and verify the doctrines of the new covenant. And then those doctrines and those writings were used to compare the other church documents that were available at the passing of the apostles. When the twelve had died and gone on, and the people in the churches were trying to determine which which letter can we count as Bible? What should we include in our Bible? There were a bunch of heretics trying to include a bunch of extra stuff. And the ones that loved God used the word of God. Listen to me today. They used the known word of God and they took the apostles' writings and the writings of the people that worked directly with the 12 apostles and they compared the writings and if they found any errors, any schisms, any contradictions, they said that is obviously not God's word. And they pushed it aside as historical figure pieces and they held up what we have today, the 66 books of the Bible. As God's word. And they said this is it. And since that time Jesus has not come back. And handpicked disciples to walk with him. Through his three and a half year earthly ministry. It's impossible. He didn't say apostles would cease. Because the gift. The ministerial gift of apostle. Is still in effect. For those that will follow in. The twelve's footsteps. And carry the gospel to new regions. And work and operate under the authority. Of the twelve apostles. And of the apostle himself. Christ Jesus. Do you hear me? Do you hear me today? And those missionaries doing pioneer mission work. Operating under the. Um under the authority of the word of God are no less apostles because apostles aren't superheroes. Do you hear me? They're just men. But the 12 apostles of the Lamb can only be 12 and they, because God said so in the book of Revelation. And he said there are 12 apostles of the Lamb. And secondly, we know that there are requirements for an apostle to have that special privilege of being one of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. They had to have been with Christ from his baptism with John through his entire ministry right up to the ascension. And Paul the apostle was cut in as an apostle born out of due time. And if I'm wrong about that, the Lord can correct me. But he did say that himself, that he was... As one born out of due time. This is how we have the Bible. Now, the evidence that these apostles were apostles is their fruit. Jesus said, ye shall know them by their fruit. And the proof of what is the word of God. The, listen to me right here. Some of you shut me off already. The proof that this book is the word of God is found in its fruit. It's absolute perfection. There is not one contradiction in this book. There are many um, apparent contradictions that look like contradictions to the unspiritual, to the natural man who receiveth not the things of God, who's trying to find fault and nitpick at God's word. 
But to those that seek God and know God and to receive this as the word of God, God opens their understanding and there is not one contradiction in this entire book. It is accurate. It is infallible. It is inspired. It is perfect. It is the word of God and it is the key of your salvation and of your Christianity. The church at Thessalonica, everything that made them click was that they received the word, not as the word of men, but as it was in truth, the word of God, though it came from physical men. All ministerial gifts, it says there in Ephesians, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the work of the ministry, for the edification, etc., until we all come into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which has not happened yet. Look at the context of that text. All ministerial gifts are only legitimate as long as they adhere to the Word of God. Any departure from the Word of God is a departure from God. I can't even stress to you today enough how important this message is. I told you we're closing and we're closing. That's the last of my notes that I have on this. I cannot stress to you how important this doctrine is that the Word of God is the Word of God. When we say the Word of God, we're not talking about a copy of what some people say that God said. Do you hear me today? We're saying this is the divine utterance of Almighty God. Right there in that Bible. The divine utterance of the Almighty God. And for it to be understood and for you to be saved, you must receive it as it is in truth, the Word of God.